says, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. And Father, we humbly ask that you'd give us grace now to continue in our worship by giving our heart, soul, mind, and spirit just fully attentive to the truth of the word of God. We pray, Lord, prepare us, and by your Holy Spirit's ministry, speak to us through what you have spoken here in your written word this day. We ask expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, a time of preparation obviously refers to that important and oftentimes essential process of making things ready and sometimes also making people ready. And as we think about a time of preparation, we see that part of Jesus' human life as a man included a time of preparation. We see that to some degree in our text this morning. And likewise, as followers of Jesus, part of our human experience will include times of preparation as well. As we take our earthly journey from start to finish, there will be periods of time that involve important and an essential process of making things ready or at times even making people ready or even making us ready in some way as well. Now, our Lord Jesus, of course, we know his earthly life was a very small fraction of the entirety of his life. And I think it's important to always remember that Jesus has been around from all of time and eternity together with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He's eternally existent, and our Lord Jesus was forever alive in heaven as the eternally existent Son of God. And yet at a pointed time, historically, he then entered into this world to live as a man, to function in the messianic ministry that God gave to him, his father, to reveal God as a man living among us, showing us what God was like in his humanity, ministering to people in all the various ways he did, and then, of course, ultimately to suffer and to sacrifice for our sins as he died upon the cross in our place, taking the punishment for our sins, raising again that we might be forgiven of sin and saved eternally. And we see as we look at Jesus' earthly life that the span of his earthly life as a man, the Bible records, was only about 33-ish years. Uh, So a very short lifespan, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, very important verse, tells us that our Lord Jesus began his ministry about 30 years of age. So his entire earthly life, only 33 or so years, we believe somewhere in that range, 33, 33 and a half years. And take note, the Bible tells us his ministry, his public ministry, which he came to accomplish, was only the last three, three and a half years of that lifespan. Now, prior to the age of 30, the greater part of his earthly life, Jesus lived as a man in relative obscurity mainly being unknown, if you would, publicly or broadly known, living in what we often refer to as those silent years as a righteous man in all of his ways, in his thoughts, in his words, in his deeds, just honoring the heavenly Father, walking in harmony relationally with God the Father, being righteous in his dealings with his family members, with his friends, with people in the society around him, in the midst of his carpentry work. And we get some aspects of that time period recorded for us in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. But even there, there's not a whole lot given to us. There's very little describing those first 30 silent years of Jesus's life as a man. We get a little bit about his birth. We're told a little bit about his life when he's around 12 years old, but not a whole lot. And understand, as Jesus, through all that, is waiting in preparation for those 30 years, understanding 
why he had entered into this earth, sensing and knowing there was an appointed time for his messianic ministry to start, and at a set hour, the king of heaven, who he was, would be revealed openly to mankind as that ministry was initiated. Now, the launch of that ministry in Mark's account begins in our very next verse that we'll look at next time, verse 14, where it tells us that Jesus then went around and started preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But in the opening verses of Mark, the first 13 verses, we get a few recorded events by Mark that really tell us a few of the last steps, if you would, of preparation that finished up before the launch of Jesus' ministry officially began in a public sense. Now, the backdrop to verse 9 is important, and we saw in our first study in Mark together, verses 1 through 8, that just like all ancient kings that would come into an area, they would always send a messenger beforehand to go and announce that the king was about to arrive soon. And his job also was to tell the people to make preparations. They were to make roads straight that were crooked. They were to level where there were mounds, and they were to fill in where there were holes so that there was ease of access and maximum receptivity of that king when he came to those people. Well, God did the same thing, of course. He's sending heaven's king, the king of kings. And so we saw that God the Father did the same as he sent the king of kings, Jesus, he sent a messenger, John the Baptist, who was the selected individual, who was the one to go before them. In fact, if you look back in verse 2 and 3, as it was written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare before you the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That was the prophecy that described John the Baptist's ministry as the messenger to go ahead to prepare the way for King Jesus, the Messiah and Deliverer. And it tells us in verse 4 that John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism, encouraging people for the repentance, for the remission of their sins, that is to turn from their sins, to be ready to experience the forgiveness of their sins, and all the land of Judea was going out from Jerusalem, out there into the Jordan wilderness area of Judea to be baptized, and they were confessing their sins. And John was preaching, verse 7, saying, there comes one after me, mightier than I, who I'm not worthy, he said, even to touch his sandal strap, to stoop down and loose it. And I may baptize with water, but John said, this is just, in a sense, a prelude, because he is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God's moving powerfully. John is accomplishing this ministry of preparing people to be ready for the Messiah as the Savior to come. And everyone, as the Spirit is moving, is looking expectantly for this greater one to come, knowing that he would be the one to forgive their sins. They could turn from their sins, but that they were waiting for one who would bring the remission, the removal of their sins and give them power from on high to be able to live differently, to overcome their sins that they may have been struggling with. So John's ministry was to prepare the people, to get them ready for heaven to now reveal the Savior, to reveal the King and the promised Messiah, which brings us now to verse 9, where it tells us, and it came to pass in the midst of those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So after a long process of waiting, the set time finally arrived, and Jesus' identity was now about to be openly revealed as the chosen Messiah, that he was this predicted deliverer that God throughout the Old Testament told his people he would be sent. And notice this process involved first being water baptized by John, in the Jordan, just like others. Now, take note in the beginning of verse 9 there, that little phrase, I love how the Holy Spirit tells us, and it came to pass in those days. It came to pass, which is a statement meaning it eventually happened. After a long, extensive time of waiting, it finally transpired. That's the indication there. What God had promised yet allowed a lengthy process of time to elapse, 
eventually finally transpired. God, by his power and in his timetable, brought it to pass. And just think of that through for a moment. God first indicated and promised that he was going to send a savior to people who were sinners all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When mankind first fell into sin, there in Genesis 3, we get the first promise and prophecy that a Savior would be sent, and that was 4,000 years before Jesus eventually came. You want to talk about a long time period, and then through successive generations, right? What does God do? He repeatedly keeps giving more predictive promises with specific details of this Savior and of this Messiah eventually coming, so that when he came, it would be very easy to recognize him. We know over some 300-plus prophecies, for those who've counted it out, we're told, describing the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he would be born, different things about him, so that when this Messiah came, they would recognize him. So you have a 4,000-year gap from the first promise and indication he's coming, many successive promises, reassurances, he's coming, and this is how you can tell, and all these throughout the generations, then Jesus is finally born. And then after Jesus is finally born as a man, as a baby, God allows another three decades, another three decades to still pass as Jesus matures into manhood. Now, I know sometimes we think we struggle waiting. Imagine how excited God the Father was for over 4,000 years knowing. And again, the Bible says Jesus was chosen before the foundations of the world even. But imagine just from the first promise, God makes a promise to humanity, I am going to send a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior to solve this problematic situation of sin and separation between us. And for 4,000 plus years, God's waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and there's a set time and he's got to keep waiting and waiting as this comes together and that comes together and all the, the pieces are being prepared properly, if you would, throughout humanity. To some degree, I imagine Jesus patiently waiting as well. Again, he's the eternal son of God. He was there at the first promise. And then as he enters into earth as a man, he's born and as he's growing and Conscious recognition comes about as a human being, knowing who he is. Again, he's waiting patiently for the right hour, for that set time for his public ministry to initiate and to launch and begin. And what God had promised, after a lengthy process of time elapses, the Bible says here, it finally came to pass. After all that waiting, eventually it happened. God, by his faithfulness and by his power, in his timetable, God brought it to pass. And look, I think this is an important thing for all of us by way of application. May we all learn how to trust God through the quiet season, through the silent situations, maybe the confusing time of preparation when we're waiting for God to bring something to pass, while we're waiting for God to orchestrate what needs to come to pass and to know that in those silent seasons that God is indeed still working and that God knows fully how, no matter what it looks like or how long it's been, to bring it to pass in his way. And look, this morning, I'm sure many of us in this room could give firsthand testimony to how from time to time in our life we've seen that event transpire. Whether it was waiting for a spouse, whether it was waiting for something to transpire, and how there was this and that, and we realize, and, and man, and there's a lapse of time, and God's preparing this and preparing us and making us ready and getting this ready and making things line up as he works in all these different ways and angles, and then eventually God brings it to pass. And we realize, man, eventually God, God did do it. He finally brought it to pass and how we were able to see God do that. And even as here, we see God, he's finally bringing it to pass. Jesus is going to be revealed. His ministry is now going to begin after all this extensive preparation. And as John in those days, it says there, verse nine was baptizing the people. It was in those days that Jesus, verse nine, it says, came 
from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized. Now, Nazareth, we know, was the town that Jesus grew up in, born in Bethlehem. But the Bible tells us that he grew up in Nazareth, and that's where he lived out his first 30 years. It seems to be working as a carpenter, just like his stepfather Joseph was a carpenter and in somewhat inheriting the trade of his father and functioning in that way. We know historically that Nazareth itself was a small community. There was nothing special about the area of Nazareth. It wasn't a famous place. It was no Jerusalem or major city or anything of that nature. And it seems to be an area that was kind of characterized by immorality as a community as well. We remember in John chapter 1, it tells us that at one point, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, hey, we have found him who Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about. And then he said, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said in response, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you see the mindset of the people in the community? Come on. You, you found the Messiah? You're telling me you found the one that Moses and the prophets predicted was coming? He's got to be from Jerusalem. I mean, that's the religious capital of the known world. That's where the temple is and the priests are. I mean, got to be one of the priests or something, doesn't it? It's got to be one of the famous... Ra- Nazareth, of all places, can anything good... Po- I mean, not just could the Messiah come, could, could anything good come from there? And to me, that's very insightful because notice that Nathaniel was dismissing the idea anything good or worthwhile could stem from a person of that original origin. And how interesting that is. People from Nazareth, apparently, you might say, did not have the best start in life. They didn't have the best privileges. They didn't have some of the greatest opportunities. And perhaps maybe it was little opportunity, but notice that did not hinder nor did it deter Jesus from becoming everything that God wanted him to become as a man. In fact, quite frankly, it actually was a part of Jesus' preparation. Those initial early beginnings and some of the hardship connected to that was actually a part of what prepared Jesus to enter into the fullness of God's plan. And by way of application, can I say to you this morning, our upbringing... Our community, our place of start, whatever that was in life, does not need to hinder us. Nor does it need, listen, nor does it need to be a wasted excuse for why we claim victimization, for why we will just always be the way that we are. That's unhealthy. That's wrong. The reality is this. That upbringing, that community, that start, That's not an accident. Acts chapter 17 says that God puts us on this earth in the places he does for the best possible chance for us to realize our need for God in our life. So it's not a mistake the family you were raised in or where you came from or what your upbringing was or what your early life experiences were. Those things can become a great part of our preparation for a greater life purpose. You know, as as I think of that, I I think of someone like Ben Carson. Go read his early upbringing, read his story, and look who he became. And notice how when you hear him share at times, he will always point back and reference, look, my upbringing, my lack of this, my lack of opportunity, that was not an excuse to claim that I was a victim. He had a mother who couldn't even read that would make her children read books, and she would pretend to check the reports they would write. But but, But look what out of that because he chose not to be a victim and his mother would not let him play victim look who ben carson's become i mean again just one of many reminders that it's so unhealthy and really such a, i believe a diabolical lie of the devil to claim i'm a victim i deserve special exceptions no look folks let me help you everybody on earth's a victim of the fall Get over it. (laughs) Let me say this, and get on with it. Jesus was from Nazareth. Nobody thought anything good could come from there. Perhaps God was reminding us that's not about the environment, but it's about what God's doing inside of a life that ultimately matters. So he comes from Nazareth of Galilee, and Galilee was that region 
in the Sea of Galilee, which means northern Israel. So what this is describing, verse 9, is Jesus travels about 70 miles, walking on foot, no train, no quick flight, (laughs) no Uber. He just walks in sandals, hot Mideastern climate, walks 70 miles now very intentionally to come all the way down, not a convenient journey, to be baptized, it says, verse 9, by John, they're in the dirty Jordan River just like everyone else. Now, we may wonder, and sometimes the question is brought up, wait a minute, if John's water baptism was specifically for identifying oneself with repentance, which means turning from sin to be ready to receive forgiveness of sin, and confessing one's sinfulness and a desire to turn from it and be forgiven, why would Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, why would he come and participate in this baptism? Look, that even perplexed John the Baptist himself when Jesus showed up and walked forward in line and realized, whoa, something seems, I'm having trouble processing this here mentally. Again, Matthew's account gives us the record of that reality. Matthew 3 records this. It says that Jesus went to John to be baptized, and John, listen, John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him. Now, John's logical thinking, right? That's how we always process everything. Think through logically. And so we try and think through what God's doing at times logically from our human perception and limited understanding. And John was struggling with what did not seem right in his eyes. He was struggling to a degree, if you would, with something that felt incorrect to him. Jesus walks up and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't baptize you. That doesn't feel right, man. Just something that I just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm uneasy with. And, and he's struggling with his emotions. He's struggling with his mental kind of understanding of this. So he actually, it says, tried to resist what Jesus was doing. Imagine that. It says he actually tried to prevent him. <laughs> and Jesus had to speak to him and say, John, there is a righteous purpose behind this. And once he spoke to him, then eventually, thankfully, John did submit to the Lord rather than his emotions, rather than his feelings, rather than his human perception of what he thought was right from a human being standpoint with limited understanding, eventually he submitted to the lordship and the authority of Jesus, and in an act of faith, he let Jesus have his way, and he water baptized Jesus there. Again, What a reminder. Sometimes, folks, when God is working and his plan is unfolding, we may have a similar struggle that we go through from time to time. Sometimes as God's plan is unfolding and our lack of understanding as human beings, and sometimes, and I'm going to say this because I know it's been my experience, sometimes even in our desire to want to be hyper-spiritual or to be, I imagine John was kind of feeling like he was pretty humble. I can't baptize you you should baptize me. Well, that's awful humble, John. Was humble. It was the the Lord of glory (laughs) standing before him. But yet the reality is in his desire to be humble and his attempt to be spiritual, if you would, and, and struggling emotionally and mentally, sometimes like John, we may actually try and prevent what the Lord's doing. And we may actually try and stop Jesus from what he's actually doing because we just don't feel right about it or we're struggling emotionally, or we can't understand it mentally. And let me just say, we have to beware of that error. It is always best to yield in faith to Jesus and allow him to lead. He always knows what's right, and he knows what's best. And if in some way we ever find ourselves preventing the Lord from what he's doing, the wise thing to do would be, look, Lord, I need to stop trying to prevent what you're doing and just just yield to this and, and just submit to the Lord. That is always the wisest thing. And it was appropriate for John to baptize Jesus, Jesus said, because it was to fulfill a purpose of God's righteous plan. No doubt, certainly, to some degree, from heaven's standpoint, it was the right thing to happen at this time to allow Jesus as the Savior for the sin of mankind to fully identify with sinful humanity whom he came 
as the perfect man and substitute to be able to spare from their sinful condition. And so to some degree, to identify as if you would, that mediator now between God and men or mankind, the man Christ Jesus, the intermediary who is in touch with God and now in touch with humanity, that he was that promise delivered to save people from sin and that this Jesus who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians says, that he would ultimately become sin, the sin sacrifice for us, that in him we could then become the righteousness of God through what he accomplished. And so Jesus, understanding that God had a purpose in this, persuades John to allow it to happen. And part of Jesus being baptized was another event in this process of God making now a transition, another transition from John's ministry to now the initiation of the messianic ministry of Jesus as he's publicly identified and starts his earthly ministry. And as Jesus is being water baptized, we see in verse 10 that as he's being baptized, it says, and immediately, it's a famous word of John, or Mark, he loves that word, we'll see, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, opening up, and the spirit descending upon him, that's Jesus, like a dove. So as Jesus comes up from under the water, there's this wonderful supernatural experience that transpires there as Jesus saw the heavens parting and God the Father was opening up the atmospheric sky, if you would, and allowing his son to see directly into the eternal heavenly realm from where he first came. And it says that the Holy Spirit, verse 10, during this, look what it says, came down and the Spirit came upon him and rested upon Jesus to remain upon his life. Now, this experience of the Holy Spirit coming and resting upon Jesus' life to remain upon him as a man seems to, in a sense, be for two main purposes. The first being to identify Jesus as the Messiah, to authenticate very clearly on the earth that God was saying this is heaven's way of declaring by putting the Spirit upon him openly like this, this is the chosen one. This is the one whom I sent. Again, Isaiah 42 says this. Listen to it prophetically. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a faintly burning wick he shall not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not grow faint nor be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Again, Isaiah 61.1, just another reference, same thing. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. A clear prophecy of our Lord Jesus being authorized and identified. In fact, John himself identifies in his own words that part of this experience of the Spirit coming and resting upon Jesus was indeed even for clear recognition. John 1 tells us that the next day after Jesus was baptized by John, that John saw Jesus and said out loud as he saw him the day following this baptism, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who had sent me, God, to baptize with water, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and testified, this is the Son of God, God's chosen one. So again, one of the reasons the Spirit came upon Jesus here at his baptism was to identify and clearly validate from heaven's perspective, this is the Savior. This is the Son of God. But a secondary reason the Spirit comes upon Jesus and remains on him was to bring all of heaven's power so that Jesus could operate in his humanity to fulfill his earthly ministry. Remember, when Jesus came as a man, Philippians 2 tells us in other places 
that he willingly, if you would, and it's hard to rationalize in our little minds, he willingly set aside some of his divine prerogatives and privileges as the eternal son of God to live as man among us and chose to live fully dependent upon the father in heaven. Read the gospels, John's gospel. How many times Jesus says, I don't say anything unless the father says it. I don't do anything unless the father does it. Of myself, Jesus says often, I can do nothing. Again, full dependence upon the father, living in total dependency upon God the father, being led and guided by him and operating in full dependency on the spirit's supernatural power to exercise his earthly ministry. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter was speaking of John baptizing our Lord Jesus, he said this, listen to what Peter said, and you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and then Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were pressed by the devil. So again, this reality that Jesus received the Spirit coming upon his life to empower him to be able to minister during his earthly ministry to teach and to heal and to help and to minister and to cast out demons and to go out doing good. But he did it because of the Spirit's power resting upon his life, anointing him, if you would, for his earthly ministry. Now, let me just say in connection to that, if our Lord Jesus and his humanity waited for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to initiate and operate in his earthly ministry, hello, surely you and I, much, much more, need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit being upon our lives to do effective ministry. Look, part of the reason we prayed for these folks this morning going to the Dominican Republic trip isn't just some cute little church practice. Oh, well, let's recognize these nice people going to a foreign country it's because Acts chapter 13 says they laid hands on them and prayed on them and they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. I love them. I don't want them to go out in their flesh. I want them to be sent out by the Holy Spirit with the Spirit of God being upon their life with power to be effective and to be able to be fruitful in the ministry of the Lord that God's given to them. How we need the same. Luke 24, Jesus said, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then he said this, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Again, Acts chapter 1 Jesus said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit and receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Listen, folks, this isn't a nice little extra in the Christian life. This is an essential to live a fruitful, effective, dynamic Christian life. Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you? Do I have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me? Yes, that happens at conversion. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But it is very clear in the word of God that there is a subsequent and additional wonderful experience, however you want to figure it out theologically, of being baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives, coming upon us, enduing us with supernatural power that we might be effective and fruitful. And look, my mentality is, Lord, even if I don't understand it all mentally, I need it. Lord, and whatever you want for me, everything you have for me, I thank you that you gave me your spirit initially in salvation and he dwells inside of me and he seals me and he helps me to live a Christian life and have relationship with you. But Lord, if I'm gonna be your witness and be effective and minister to others and have a life where the, where the spirit can overflow from my life to touch the lives of others, Lord, I need the power of your spirit upon my life. And look, I can't encourage you enough. If you have never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, God's got it available for you. It's something that he wants for all of us to operate in that power. Now, notice here in verse 10, in connection to the Spirit coming down upon even our Lord and resting upon him, here it is baptism as this happens, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. And look what John tells us at the end of verse 10 as the Spirit of God's directing his word. He said, the Spirit descended upon him like, notice that word, that's a simile word, like a dove, 
like a dove. The Spirit comes powerfully upon Jesus, and it's like pictured as a bird, which represents, what does a dove represent? Peace, beauty, gentleness. That's the representation of what a dove reflects. Beauty, peace, gentleness. Notice the Holy Spirit, track with me here, was not likened to a fierce, screeching hawk (laughs) that came upon Jesus' life that gave him a very domineering behavior afterwards, where when he operated, it freaked everybody out, like a screeching hawk. The Holy Spirit does not come upon the life of Jesus or any person likened unto a duck, (laughs) acting like a quack. Duck's kind of a little bit of an obnoxious bird, would you agree? Quack, quack! People are usually kind of annoyed by ducks, and they're a little bit obnoxious, and and odd, and and, and and look, I point this out to you to say, remember, in relation to how the Holy Spirit operates in great supernatural power, heaven's power, supernatural resurrection power the Spirit operates in, but he operates, the Bible says, like a dove, very beautifully, with gentleness, with a beautiful power, it's harmonious, it's wonderful, it's not loud and awkward. It's not something where when the Holy Spirit works in the life of a person, they become overbearing or domineering and, and commanding this and threatening that. It's not obnoxious, it's not weird. When the Spirit of God is working through the life of a person and his presence and work is upon a person's life, it does not result in people being afraid or people being annoyed. And I think the Holy Spirit really gets a bad rap once in a while. You know, it's amazing how people are intimidated by the work of the Spirit of God. People aren't intimidated by the Father. They're not intimidated by a full experience with the Son. Why are people, ah, that's Spirit stuff. I don't know about that. Oh, I may be uncomfortable even when he said the word baptism of the Holy Spirit. Something weird might happen. Where did we get that idea from? Maybe poor representations of people who operated in their human spirit saying it was the Holy Spirit. And so again, I'm not saying there can't be a degree of emotion attached to things. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is that the supernatural power of the Spirit doesn't need to make a person talk in a different voice, behave in a different way, and certainly does not make people bark like dogs and do some of the weird things that we've seen people do in the body of Christ. Power, but like a dove. Beautiful, with synergy and gentleness and harmony and consistency with what's happening, not drawing awkward. That doesn't happen. Like a dove, the Spirit comes upon Jesus and as the heaven part and the Spirit comes down, then the Father speaks from heaven. Look, verse 11, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Heavenly Father now speaks to identify openly his Son whom he loves, and he expresses divine approval and pleasure towards his Son here. How wonderful, I have to imagine, how wonderful it must have been for Jesus, the Son, having been on earth now for 30 years, to a degree, detached from his prior existence with the Father in heaven forever together, and to hear his Father speak from heaven this expression of his great love, you're my beloved son, as God the Father was speaking to him. I almost wonder if there's a part of that where the Father is saying to his son, son, despite the rejection and the mistreatment that you're going to go through and the hardships that you're going to endure, And the difficulty that you're going to experience as you seek to do my will as a man. I want you to know you're my son. And I love you. And I have to wonder if in his humanity, if if that just didn't kind of sustain Jesus once in a while. Just to know the great love of his father and the acceptance of his father. And look, if that wasn't enough, the father says to him, you're not just the son that I love. He says, in you, look what he says, verse 11. I am well pleased. Now think about this, folks. The full approval of the Father in you, I am well pleased. At this point in Jesus' life, this is all prior to his earthly ministry, which means Jesus at this point 
has not preached one sermon. He's not given one teaching. He's not done one miracle, not done any healing. There's been no missionary activity. He's not endured faithfully the severe mistreatment. He's not suffered on the cross. He's not rose again. He's not done any public ministry to this point of recognition up to this point for 30 years. What has Jesus done? As a human being, as a man, he has faithfully walked in harmony and relationship with God the Father. He has lived a righteous life as a man on the earth in relative obscurity, rather being somewhat unknown, under the radar, there in Nazareth, just loving God living righteously like an ordinary man, resisting sin, praying, studying the scriptures, attending synagogue worship services, as was his custom, the Bible tells us, working with his hands, a blue-collar job as a carpenter, getting his hands dirty, sweating every day, but I imagine doing it with utmost integrity. And as he made yokes or pieces of furniture, making it and just making it while in relationship with his father. Fathers, is that good enough for you? I know I have to make it nice enough for Mr. Jones, but, but father, do you approve of this job that I've done here? And then writing bills. And every bill, never a crooked bill, never excess charges with honesty and integrity. Again, just living in a completely righteous way, loving God, loving people, living righteously in a manner that pleased his Father in heaven and brought pleasure to the Father's heart to such a degree that Father looked at his life at 30 years of age and he said to him, I am already well pleased with you. I am so pleased with you. Look, I think this is a very helpful thing. What a great lesson for us to understand what really matters to God. And maybe what doesn't matter to God so much. And we strive to find our identity in this and our purpose in that and our value in this. And, and, and God says of Jesus here, I'm already so pleased with you because you walk with me and you live righteously. And, and again, prior to his ministry, all that life of pleasing God, it's what prepared Jesus for three short years of very powerful ministry. But the first 30 years was all the preparation, that life of just pleasing God so that he might be powerfully used as the Father worked through his life by the Spirit in those latter years. What a beautiful picture here. Of course, we see all three, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. There's the Trinity, all involved, one God, three persons, all actively engaged in this redemptive process. Now, right after that powerful public baptism, Jesus obediently participates in, verse 12 says, and immediately, John shifts gears quick, the Spirit then drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was in there with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. So Mark quickly transitions from one main event right to another word, another main event, and this time it's the temptation and the trial of Jesus by the devil out in the desert wilderness. And that wilderness experience being tested was indeed another component of a preparatory experience contributing to the overall plan of God in the big picture. Notice that the wilderness experience, a time of testing, was being directed by who? By the Spirit of God, right? You do see that there, verse 13. The Spirit comes upon Jesus, and immediately the Spirit drove him the idea is strongly directed him out into a wilderness, desert-like experience where he would be tested and he would go through hardship and temptation and difficulty in his life, indicating the Spirit allows this and orchestrates this time of testing. But that hardship was not to harm Jesus. It was actually to help and to honor Jesus because it became a way, look, it became a way where God the Father showed all, watch this, despite what my son endures, no matter how much hardship he goes through, and no matter how much Satan tests him, my son will not fail. My son will remain faithful to me, he won't turn from honoring me, and he will handle this testing 
beautifully. He will handle it triumphantly. He will overcome for the glory of God. And folks, sometimes the same may become a part of our experience as Jesus' followers. The Spirit just may direct me or you into a time of a wilderness-like experience, a time of testing. And it may include some hardship. It may include a season of difficulty, struggle, even suffering, and great temptation by Satan and intense spiritual warfare. But no, the purpose of that is good in God's mind. It's not to harm us. It's actually to do good things in our lives, to teach us things about overcoming, to develop us spiritually, to prepare us for life's bigger plans sometimes, for the next thing ahead that God has for us, to grant us opportunity as God's son or God's daughter to show our commitment to God to reveal our degree of devotion to him, not just when it's easy, but even when it's very hard. And even when we're being challenged and to allow God, if you would, kind of like Job, to have a platform to brag on us a little bit. Now, I encourage you, read Job chapter one and two. I love the picture there because as Satan gains permission to test Job greatly, if you look at the account, Job chapter one and two, it's kind of because God was bragging about him. Satan's going to and fro, and, and God actually says, you considered my servant Job? He's a blameless man, upright, fears God, shuns evil. You looking for somebody to test? How about this one? What? But what was God looking for? God was looking for the occasion to be able to prove I know what I can do in my servant's life. It's almost like God gave Job a platform. I, I hate to use the term, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's almost he gave to him the privilege of suffering. I, I'm going to allow you the privilege, Job, to suffer me. And, and, and if I allowed Bob over here or Joe over there, they, they might not do as good with this. But you can handle this because you'll glorify me through this and you'll handle this properly, and your example will help others to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and I'm not going to curse God. I'm going to worship God. And sometimes God may allow us, as his spirit drives us into a wilderness season to experience things. Again, it's not to harm us. It's not to hurt us. It may be a time that God allows for testing in our lives for purposes. It tells us there in verse 13 what Jesus experienced out in the wilderness. It says he was there 40 days. So for over a month, about a month and a half, he's there tempted by Satan among the wild beasts there out in the wilderness. So he's led to a hard place circumstantially. He's in a desert. He's in a time of wilderness alone. And he's stuck in this difficult spot in life. And for over a month, he's out there enduring struggle in the midst of hardship. And then in the midst of hardship, Satan starts to attack him. Direct assault. Satan starts to attack him and use temptation to try and bring him down. What's he trying to do? Ruin God's plan for his life. Again, we know who Satan is from the scripture. He's a powerful angelic being who sinfully rebelled against God, was cast out of his heavenly position, and basically is a very determined strategist militarily, now like an angry serpent. The Bible describes him like a roaring, ferocious lion. He does everything he can to try and attack as an enemy to resist God's plan, to ruin God's purposes. And here we see him bringing that direct assault, his greatest assault against Jesus as a man to try and get him to stumble, to, to violate and become no longer sinless so that he couldn't ultimately provide salvation for us. Now, if you want to jot in your notes, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, those give us the, the extended account of what Mark gives to us in one verse here. The three temptations that Jesus endured, which were basically the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Satan comes to Jesus, and he basically tempts him with the first temptation. Satisfy yourself. Fulfill yourself. You're the son of God. You shouldn't suffer. If you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. Satisfy yourself. You deserve that longing is there. Fulfill it. Satisfy that longing. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. He quotes the scripture. Second temptation comes along. 
compromise, get ahead. If you bow down to me and worship me, all these kingdoms, I'll give them to yours. You can have this now. Why go to a cross? Why be spit on and beat and suffer? I'll just give you the kingdom now. Jesus, he was encouraging Jesus to take a shortcut. Lust of the eyes. Hey, just compromise. Get ahead differently. You don't have to do it the righteous way. Get ahead differently. Jesus resists it. You shall worship the Lord your God only. Quote scripture again. He brings Jesus to the top of the pinnacle. Throw yourself down from here. Certainly the angels will catch you. And again, make a display. You want to be the Messiah, right? Don't you? Hey, let's get your ministry launched well. We need some bells and whistles. You need a website with your name on it. Throw yourself down from here. Show them who you are. And he, mis he misquotes the scripture even. What was he telling Jesus? Promote yourself. I mean, you, you got to promote yourself and exalt yourself. Put yourself forward. If you don't put yourself forward, nobody else is going to recognize you. And the devil, again, tempts him. Jesus quotes the scripture. And as the devil departs from Jesus, no doubt as he's worn out and drained, it says the angels come and minister to him. Now, let me bring this together by way of a personal application for us. Jesus overcoming the devil in that manner, listen, folks, not as God, but he overcomes the devil as man. A man who lived dependently upon God, who stood on the authority of the word of God and was empowered by the spirit of God, overcame the devil. Do you know why he did that? To give you and I some hope because I'm not God. <laughs> but to know that in the same way our Lord did that as a man, what we simply need to be is a man or a woman fully dependent upon God, standing on the authority of the word of God and empowered by the spirit of God, and we can overcome the devil and his temptations to sin as well. As a human, don't listen to the lie of the devil. You can overcome temptation. You can change. You don't have to submit to wrong desires and unhealthy. You do not have to. Sin shall not have dominion over you, the Bible says. Jesus overcame as a man to show us as a man you also can overcome. As a woman, you can overcome. The same is available to you and I. And Jesus, going through what he did, this even too was just another part in the process to prepare him to fulfill God's ultimate plan. And look, as we go through the things that we do in the same experiences, oftentimes remember, it's not meant to harm us. It could be the platform that God is trying to bring honor through our life and develop our character. We read James 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1, and it tells us that the trials we go through on this earth aren't meant to destroy or ruin us. They're actually meant to further prepare us. So as you go through a hard time, let me encourage you, look at it this way. Not like you're stuck in a difficult pit. Instead, look at the hardship and the difficulty as perhaps God's divine doorway to prepare you for the next thing. 